What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. looking at the Ten Commandments, we've noted some important questions that we need to ask, like what happens when someone breaks these commandments? We know that it's going to take place. We know it takes place with us. We know it takes place with the nation of Israel. So it's great to have them, but what happens when they're broken? How should the judges of Israel, you know, punish those who break these, you know, commandments of the Lord? And so in chapters 21 through 23, God deals with, you know, really giving instruction to the judges of Israel of how to specifically deal with different people who break the commandments of the Lord and the punishments that go with it. Uh, And so he's giving specific laws to help the judges of Israel know how to do this. Uh, And so we're seeing God's legal system, God's justice clearly demonstrated. And we've noted that, you know, we don't live under God's legal system. We live under a man-made legal system, which we see throughout the world. And because it's man-made, made by sinful people, by flawed people, by imperfect people, then we see legal systems that are flawed, that are, you know, imperfect, that don't really produce the justice that, you know, they should. But we don't see that with God's system. It is a system because God's the one who designed it, uh, that is perfect because he is perfect, that is just because he is just. Um, But, you know, when believers look at the legal system that God has established, you know, there are many who kind of don't conclude that. It's hard for them to look and say, well, you know, this is completely just. This is, you know, the way that it should be. Uh, And one of the big things that a lot of Christians have an issue with are the punishments that God establishes. You know, here's the crime, here's the punishment. And for many, they just feel like, you know, that's maybe too extreme or that's just not justice. And so um, the biggest one that really Christians have a problem with is capital punishment. They struggle with God saying, you know what, the person who's committed this crime is deserving of death. Now, last week, because we, we moved into this section on the punishment for violent crimes, you know, I took the majority of our time when we were together looking at this issue of capital punishment. And there were four important things that we noted. First, capital punishment is just. Why is it just? Because God, who is just, is the one who established it in his legal system. Uh, And for those who would claim that it's not just, you're claiming that God's not just. And you have lots of problems when doing that. Second, capital punishment is biblical. God clearly establishes it uh, in the time of Noah. He reestablishes it much more clearly here in the time of Moses. Paul, when he's writing, specifically tells us that God has established one of the roles of government to punish evildoers. And he says they do not spare the uh, uh, sword in vain, speaking of capital punishment. Uh, Third, the purpose of capital punishment was to justly judge violent criminals, but also to protect the society that was living amongst these people. And the fourth thing we noted is in order for it to work, the way that God intended it to work, there has to be two things, and we don't have them in our culture. And so when you look at our culture, you say, well, well, it doesn't work. Well, yeah, it doesn't work because there's two things. First, you've got to be a nation governed by God. 
Uh, and we don't have any anymore. Uh, and so that's one of the most important things of all. If you're not a nation governed by God, guess what? This isn't going to work. Secondly, you must implement all of God's legal system, not just parts of it. You know, we have taken parts of it that we feel are good, and we say we're going to implement this one and this one, but we're going to ignore that one and that one. And so we look back and we think, well, this isn't working. Well, yeah, it's not working because we're not a nation governed by God, and we're only using part of his legal system, not all of it. And so we shouldn't be surprised that it doesn't work the way that God intended it to work. And so when we look at these legal systems that are corrupt and man-made, and we conclude, well, God's system just doesn't work. What God established doesn't work. No, no, no. It's not God's system that's wrong or flawed. It's the way that we have implemented that it's wrong. It's our system that is sinful that is wrong. God's system is just. God's system is perfect. But just nobody in our culture today actually does it. So as we continue looking at the laws that God gives, I want us to remember that they're just, they're biblical. This is something that God has established. Uh, and it gives us an insight as to, you know, things about God as he, the value of life that he places, when we see the punishment that he brings kind of shows what he deems as important and what he deems as severe. Uh, and so we're going to spend tonight looking at the next, we, we looked at murder uh, and we saw that clearly God says if you murder, uh, then the punishment of that is your life should be taken from you. Uh, but now we're going to continue to look at other violent crimes and the judgment that God says that you should have. And we noted last week there is a difference between killing and murder. Murder is killing someone without legal or moral justification. Uh, we're killing is uh, doing that with legal and moral justification. And so if you do it with legal and moral justification... God did not say you should be killed versus if you murder, then the punishment was death. And so we're going to pick up here verse 15 of chapter 21 and look at the next crime of violence and the punishment that God says should be given. It says this, and he who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Now, when people start reading the violent crimes, they start off in the beginning, and they think, okay, murder, I can get it. I can get why you would be, you know, given this punishment of death. But then they come to this one, and this is where people get all up in arms and think, oh my goodness, you strike your father or mother, and the punishment is death? I mean, come on, God, we're getting a little severe here. We're getting a little extreme, don't we think? And the problem is that we don't really understand what this word strikes mean. Because when we think of the word strikes, we think of you know slapping someone or punching someone. We think that if I were to slap my mom or my dad or punch them, you know, I mean, yeah, I should be punished. But I mean, death, I mean, that, that seems to be you know quite an extreme uh, consequence. But the word here in the Hebrew that's translated strike, it has a much more severe meaning. Uh, and that's why there's the severe punishment. Uh, the Hebrew words to mean fatally struck, smitten, beaten, or slain. It's the exact same Hebrew word that's used in verse 12 when it says, One who strikes a man so that he dies shall be surely put to death. So within the context and looking at what this Hebrew word means, what is being said here is if a son or a daughter strikes their parent and to kill them, that they kill their parent, well, just like any other murderer, they're going to be put to death. And so God is just kind of expounding upon what he's just said about murder. Hey, anybody who kills, murders someone, the punishment is death. And, you know, kids or, you know, but son or, or daughter, I mean, I'm, I'm a son of my parent. It doesn't really have an age limit. You know, at, at any point in time, if you were to strike your parent and kill them, well, guess what? You are guilty of murder and just like anyone else, you would be subject to the consequence of that, which is the death penalty. 
Now in verse 16, God tells us something about uh, something that's deserving of death that is not murder. The first thing that we have that is deserving of death, but that's not murder. Verse 16, he who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. So first, God establishes murder. That's something that's you know, punishable by death. And then he comes on and says, well, you know what? There's another thing. If you kidnap someone, I want those people to be put to death as well. You see, in the eyes of God, criminally enslaving a person was not far from murdering them. And I think this is interesting because at the beginning of this chapter, we looked at the laws surrounding slavery and how God protected slaves and established laws to watch out for them, protect them from their masters. And we noted that, you know, in the um, world of that time, how people became slaves versus how people became slaves in Israel was very different. There were four main ways that people became slaves in Israel. First, in extreme poverty, they choose to sell themselves into slavery. You know, they can't survive, they're dying, they have no money, they have no food, and said, you know what, I will be your slave if I can live under your roof, if you'll give me something to eat, and so it's a choice, and I willfully do this because of my situation. Secondly, we noted a father might sell his daughter to someone who already wanted to marry her. And he would do this in a situation where they were poor. He couldn't provide for his father. He couldn't give her food. He couldn't give her water. He said, you know what? This person's already given me the, you know, the dowry. He's already going to marry you anyway. We're just going to take you from my home early and place you into his home. And you can be the servant in the home until you are ready to be married. Uh, the third was a case of bankruptcy. A person might be a slave to their creditors in order to pay off their debts. They get into you know, debt and they run up you know, this debt and they can't pay it back anymore. And they say, fine, I'll be your slave. I'll work for you to pay your debt. All three of those was a choice that someone made to go into this. The only one that wasn't a choice was a thief. A thief who was caught and they couldn't pay restitution because they were told, hey, you know what? If you steal something, you've got to pay at least two to four times back. Well, I don't have any money. I don't have anything to give back. Okay, well, fine. We're going to force you into being a slave because you're going to have to pay back what you owe. That was the only person who didn't willfully choose that, but as a punishment was forced into that. Uh, and we noted that even that person and anyone else, that they would only be a slave for the maximum of six years, and then you had to be set free at the year of Jubilee. So the slavery in Israel was very different than the rest of the world. And um, one of the most common ways that people in the rest of the world got into slavery was not by choice. was by They were kidnapped. You know, they were placed into that against their will, against their choice. You know, that's really what kidnapping is, taking and imprisoning a person against their will. And that was the common way that people became slaves. And why so many, when they hear that term and they see the Bible speak of it, they're like, oh, it's so horrible. But realizing, well, God does not approve of that. And here we see it again, because notice his consequence for kidnappers. Because this is really the, the crux of what got slavery going, is I'm going to take you against your will and place you into something that you don't want to be. Well, God says, someone who does that, kill them. That's what they deserve. That's the consequence that I want to bring on them, because God sees that as such a horrible thing, because he values human life so much. You know, in our society, kidnapping people is unfortunately much on the rise. You know, when I was a kid, you know, I associated kidnapping with someone wanting to get money. They're going to take someone and they're going to, you know, I want a ransom for this person. And you still see that to this day. But something that has grown greatly and it's very sad, the most common reason for kidnapping today 
is to put people into sex slavery. Uh, and it's horrible. They just grab them, they take them, and they place them into this. Uh, you know, personally, I'd rather be killed. I'd definitely rather my girls to be killed than placed into that for the rest of their life. And God sees this as such a horrible thing that he says, you know what? This person deserves death. Just like someone who's a murderer, you are taking someone who's created in the image of God and you're forcing them into this horrible life and you deserve to have your life taken for doing so. Well, God tells us another thing that's deserving of death in verse 17. And he who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Once again, we, we, we read this and we're like, man, all of us deserve death. You know, I mean, some of the people think, well, oh, I've, I've cursed my parents before. Well, it's not speaking of saying curse words to your parents. This is another one of those words that we need to understand the meaning of. The Hebrew word translated curses has the idea of speaking death and destruction on someone. It would probably be more translated in, in the words that we would think of as a, as a death threat. Our, uh, Alan Cole wrote this. Since to curse was to will and pray the downfall of the other with all one's heart, it represented the attitude from which sprang acts like striking or murder. So the basic idea behind cursing your parents is, is telling your parents you know, you're going to kill them, planning on killing them. It was something that was kind of preceding the act. You know, first you have within your heart the desire to do it, and you're actually verbalizing like, I am going to, it's a death threat, I'm going to kill you. Uh, and so God is saying, hey, if a son or daughter actually commits the act of murder against their parent, kill them. And also, if they're threatening that, that's in their heart, they're planning on doing it, well, you know what? Beat them to the punch, take them, and kill them as well. Now, it's interesting, in Deuteronomy chapter 21, we're told the parent didn't have the right to kill their child. You know, if they suspected something, they had to take their child in front of the judges, give the evidence to the judges, and the judges would then make a determination as to whether or not this child should be put to death. So it wasn't, you know, this was a protection for a child, because the parent couldn't just say, I think you're, you're, you're wanting me dead, so let's go outside, let's get the stones. You know, they weren't allowed to do that. Nobody actually was allowed to take the, the um, right of killing people into their own hands. That was for the judges to do. David Guzik wrote this. The law discouraging conflict between generations is important. Each elder generation as they grow older is at the mercy of the younger generation. If the younger generation is allowed to carry an open warfare with the older generation, the very foundations of society are shaken. As reflected in the fourth commandment, some modern laws, including developing laws regarding euthanasia, may lead to the easy murder of the older generation by the younger. And I like this mindset of it's not just, you know, a protection against, you know, child and parent, but ultimately, you know, within the culture, you know, when the younger generation deems the older as not valuable and wanting just to end their life, you know, this is something that has this huge breakdown that we see in our own culture today that, you know, there's not this respect, there's not this appreciation for a life that's older and taking care of that as opposed to trying to destroy that. Now, verse 12 started by this violent, you know, um, punishment by saying, he who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. Well, that leads to the question, what happens if I strike you, but you don't die? What's the punishment for that? I mean, if I hit you and you die, I know that I'm going to be killed. But what, what happens if you don't die? Well, verses 18 and 19 tell the punishment for that. If men contend with each other and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and he does not die, but is confined to his bed, 
If he rises again and walks about outside with his staff, then he who struck him shall be acquitted. He shall only pay for the loss of his time and shall provide for him to be thoroughly healed. So if two people get in a fight, now we've already seen it. If two people get in a fight, one kills the other, well, you're guilty of murder. Guess what? You're going to die. What? If two people get in a fight, you're fighting with fists or as here that says a rock, you hit somebody, but they don't die. You know, they, they go, they're in their bed, but, you know, they're, they're hurt. Maybe they got a concussion, but a few weeks or a few days or a month later, they get up, they're fine. Well, you're not going to be, you know, put to death because you didn't murder them. They're still alive, but you will be punished. And here's the punishment. You got to pay for their loss of time. So whatever time that they would have been working and earning money, you have to pay for that. And you also have to pay for their medical bills until they're totally healed. You know, and we have a very similar principle in our legal system, which we probably took from this. Uh, and it works well. You know, if I were to, you know, strike Colson and, you know, now he's you know, out of work for a month, you know, I'm going to have to be required to pay for, you know, not only what he lost at work, I'm also going to have to pay for his legal fees and I'll probably have to pay, you know, something above and beyond that as well. Um, but, you know, this is to protect, you know, the person who has been injured uh, in this instance. But what happens, okay, if we turn the tables here, those are two people who are free fighting. What happens when a master does something to their servants? Because in that culture, that was completely fine. Masters could do whatever they want. Servants had no rights. But what about in God's legal system? Verse 20 and 21. And if a man beats his male or female servant with a rod so that he dies under his hand, he shall surely be punished. Notwithstanding, if he remains alive a day or two, he shall not be punished, for he is his property. So if a master beats his servant to death, guess what? The master is going to receive the same punishment as anyone else who would murder someone, and they would surely be punished, as it says here, and, you know, with the context, punished with the punishment that God has just established for murder. He will surely be punished with having his life taken from him because he is guilty of murder. And I think this is important to know that once again, we see that God sees people with equal worth. You know, we see God protecting slaves. We see God protecting, you know, young women who are betrothed and, and really people who, you know, are, are um, at the mercy of the culture that God establishes laws in which to protect them. And so here's a servant. And at that time, this was a revolutionary thought. You know, masters could kill any slave they wanted. It's their property. You know, I kill you fine. You know, that's my loss. I don't have you anymore. But, you know, I don't have anything happen to me. God says, no, you murder a person. I don't care if they're a slave or they're free. The consequence is you are going to have your life taken from you. Why? Because God sees everyone with equal worth. Everyone's created in his image. And, hey, everyone has value. And if you take someone's life, there's going to be extreme consequences to that. Now, we're told if the servant remains alive a day or two after having been beaten with a rod, the master shouldn't be punished for the servant is the master's property. Now, understand the context here. What's being said is that the beating of the rod is actually a disciplinary action. Uh, and so the servant is, you know, someone who's not doing what they're told. Or they're doing something wrong. And so in order for the master to get the servant to do what he should be, they would beat him with rods. You know, the Bible speaks of this with parents with kids. Don't, you know, spare the rod, spoil the child. You know, there was a reality of parents were, you know, told that, hey, you have the, the freedom to, you know, uh, spank your kids. And masters, you have the freedom to discipline your servants. And so, you know, having a master hit a servant with a rod because the servant did something wrong was not uncommon. But 
notice the law is to protect the servant. You can't go to extreme. The master is upset. How dare you not do this? I told you to do this. Now I'm just going to beat you to death. No, if you do that, you're going to have your life taken from you. But notice here, if he beats his servant and a couple days go by and the servant's still alive, but then the servant dies. Well, what does that reveal? It reveals the intent of the master, that his intent wasn't to kill the servant. You know, if he was trying to kill him, he'd been dead. Uh, that he was just trying to, you know, do the disciplinary action. He maybe went a little far a couple days later because of the wounds of the servant, he dies. And so because the intent was not to murder, therefore... The master is not going to be guilty of murder. And notice we see that God brings this into it, that there is something that he sees that is not just the, the act, but also the intent uh, is something that should be judged as well. But notice we're told he shall not be punished for he is his property. Now, Walter Kaiser writes about this statement for he is his property. Uh, and I think it makes some sense as to what God is saying here. For he is his property literally because he is his money. The point is not that men are mere property, but that the owner has an investment in this slave that he stands to lose either by death or emancipation. So when God says he shall not be punished for he is his property, God's saying, hey, he didn't intend to do this. He doesn't need any more punishment. Why? Because this is something that he paid for. This person he put a lot of money into, and now that he's lost that, that's his punishment. You know, so he doesn't need to have a greater one because he just suffered a huge loss in this person dying, which he wasn't intending to die, didn't want to die, but now he's suffering the loss of that person. So God is saying that is going to be the consequence that this master receives in this circumstance. Well, what happens if two people are fighting and they end up hurting an innocent person. An innocent bystander is there in the midst of this. I mean, imagine you go to a bar or imagine you're in, you know, some place where you got some people, they get in a fight and then somebody's standing near, they get hurt. What's the consequence to those who are getting in a fight hurting someone who was not even a part of what was going on? Well, God gives an illustration uh, for us in verses 22 through 25. If men fight and hurt a woman with child, so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished accordingly as the, husband's, as the woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So if men fight, they're in this battle. We've already seen, hey, if they, one kills the other, man, that's it. That person, he's going to be killed. If one strikes the other, but the, they don't die, okay, well, then he's going to have to pay for his medical bills. He's going to have to pay for the, the loss of work. What happens if those guys are just getting in the fight, and the one who really gets hurt is the innocent bystander who's nearby? Maybe two guys are fighting in their home, and one of the guy's wife who's pregnant in there, and she ends up or getting hurt, or the baby is prematurely born. Okay, well, well, then what transpires? What's the punishment for these two men who were in this fight and caused this to happen? Well, if the baby and the mother turn out to be okay, the baby's just born prematurely, but is healthy, the mom's healthy, nothing else transpires except for that, then the punishment is going to be a fine. They're going to have to pay money. The husband of this woman is going to come and say, I believe that this is how much money should be paid. And then the judges are going to determine if that's a good amount. Uh, if it should be less, if it should be more. And then ultimately the person, uh, the, cup, the, the two people who are fighting are going to have to pay that money uh, to this family because they did that. But now if something went wrong, the wife 
or the mother is hurt or the, or the baby is now born with some kind of problem because of this fight, now God says that the consequence is a little bit more. He says, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So God's saying, hey, if you get in this fight and, you know, we find that, you know, the baby or the mom, you know, let's say the mom breaks her arm, you know, in this fight, you knock her over, she breaks her arm. Well, guess what? These two guys, consequences, they're going to have their arms broken. Oh, they knock out her tooth. Well, what's the consequence? They're going to have theirs knocked out. That whatever happens to her, the just punishment is that that's going to now be done to them for doing that to her. Now, oftentimes people look at this eye for an eye mentality as very harsh, as promoting revenge, uh, that, you know, you're just trying to get back at people for what they did to you. But you know what? That is actually not why God established this law. God established this law to stop people from doing more to you than what you did to them. Like when we see this, we think, oh man, God, you're telling eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. I mean, come on, why don't you just have some grace and mercy here? But no, God say no, only eye for eye. Only tooth for tooth. Only burn for burn. Why? Because what we want is far more. You knocked over my wife and broke her arm, or you've got her a cut on her arm, I'm going to cut your throat. I'm going to break both your legs. You know, we don't actually retaliate with even measure. You, you, you hit me in the face, and, you know, I'm going to pummel you with a bat. You know, there's this reality that we often go far beyond what someone did to us. And so God, in establishing this, is saying, hey, the consequence is there. It's going to be just. You're going to get exactly what they gave, but no more. You're not allowed to go beyond what they did to the other person. Uh, and so this is something that God is establishing here to block our desire for vengeance uh, and this not giving us this license for revenge. But at the same time, we can feel like justice was done. You know, they have received what they did. And I'm not allowed to go beyond that, even though within me I would like to, especially if it was my wife and, you know, unborn baby. But you know what? You know, God is saying, no, you can only do what was done to you. So how does this law work with masters and servants? Once again, this group that typically was not governed, uh, where servants were just abused and taken advantage of all the time. Notice what we're told in God's legal system, verse 26 and 27. If a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, he shall let him go free for the sake of his eye. And if he knocks out the tooth of his male or female servant, he shall let him go free for the sake of his tooth. Now notice the, the principle of an eye for an eye is a little different application for servants. So a master, you know, you have two people, they're having this fight, someone else, you know, loses their tooth. Well, guess what? Those guys are going to lose their teeth as well. But what happens when a master is the guilty party? He knocks out the tooth of his servant being too rough. Uh, he causes the servant to go blind by hitting him in the eye. Well, notice that the, the application is different because the servant gets something more valuable to him than the master losing his tooth. The servant gets his freedom. And so God's saying, hey, you know what? This is actually going to be an even bigger um, protection and something that will cause masters to be even more likely not to do things because now they are losing not only that servant, but you see uh, later on that they actually lose the right to have them as well. So not only do you lose this one, but you're going to lose the right to have others because of your abuse. Uh, and so God is saying, hey, for those who are servants, if your master abuses you, you get freedom. You're no longer bound to serve under that person because of what he's done to you. Uh, and, you know, this law is put into place to help masters not mistreat those that in the culture 
You know, this was a very common thing. Adam Clark wrote this. If this did not teach masters humanity, it taught them caution, as one rash blow might have deprived them of all right to future service of the slave, and this self-interest obliged them to be cautious and circumspect. So now we see once again, God is continually to establish laws to protect the vulnerable, to protect the servant, to protect the, the uh, pregnant woman. He, he wants to put laws in the place to help watch over these people that typically if things were to happen to them, nothing would be done. And God says, not in my legal system. I value everyone. And if this takes place with these people, then these are the things that are going to happen. And this is hopefully going to not just punish wrongdoers, but prevent crime. You know, I mean, that's the twofold thing of, you know, consequences, you know, are a preventative measure. You know, if there are no consequences, then typically people will do whatever. But knowing the consequences, knowing what's going to happen. If I'm a master and I realize, man, if I go far, you know, and I knock this guy's tooth out, I lose this investment. I lose this servant. I lose all the work that they'll do, do for me for the next however many years. So, you know, that consequence hopefully helps hold the master in check. And if it doesn't, well, the servant goes free. You know, he has the freedom that comes from this behavior, he doesn't have to continue to be suffering through it because God releases him from that. Now, what happens if a person, um, if it's not a person who kills someone? What happens if an animal who kills someone? Well, God even has laws for that because that transpires as well, and that would still fit under these violent crimes. Verse 28 through 32. If an ox gores a man or a woman to death, then the ox shall surely be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten but the owner of the ox shall be acquitted. But if the ox tended to thrust with its horns in time past and has been made known to his owner and he has not kept it confined so that it has killed a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner shall be put to death. If there is imposed on him a sum of money, then he shall pay to redeem his life. Whatever is imposed on him, whether there is gored a son or gored a daughter, according to this judgment, it shall be done to him. If the ox gores a male or female servant, he shall give to their master 30 seconds of silver, and the ox shall be stoked. So here we have a law based on oxen, and it would be more animals, but at that time, oxen were really the only dangerous animal that Israel had. I mean, no one was worried about getting killed by sheep uh, or goats, but oxen could. You know, they're big enough, they, you know, they could you know, kill you. And so God uses this as an example. If an ox kills a man, what's the punishment for the owner of the ox, and for the ox himself. Um, and the law is illustrating the principle of intent and also the principle of neglect. So if you have an ox, it kills someone else, um, you would not be held guilty of that uh, person's death if the ox never displayed any aggression before. You know, this is just the first time the ox you know, did this, the first time it showed any type of aggression towards other animals or other people, and it just happened, well, that's not your fault. And so, therefore, you would not be guilty of this person's death, but there is some consequence that takes place. Uh, first of all, the consequences to the ox. You know, just like anybody who kills someone else, their life is taken. So the ox has to be stoned to death, not only because the ox is now guilty of murder, but also we don't want the ox, you know, to be able to do this to someone else in the future. So the ox is going to die, but also notice that the owner was forbidden to profit from the death of this ox. We're told its flesh shall not be eaten. 
Well, yeah, an ox has a lot of meat on it, a valuable meat, so it can't be eaten by the owner, and it can't be sold for someone else to eat as well. And so the owner can't sit back and say, well, that's a bummer that the ox killed this person. Let's have a barbecue. No, they're going to stone this ox. Nobody's going to benefit from the death of this ox because it's guilty of murder. But let's say the situation was a little different. You had an aggressive ox. You knew it. It's been trying to kill animals. It's been aggressive towards people. And you have not taken the proper precautions to you know, restrain your ox like you should. And now you know the ox is dangerous and the ox goes out and kills someone. Well, guess who's now responsible? You are. Because you knew what your animal was capable of and you didn't do what was necessary to protect the people around you from him. And so God says, now that's just, you're guilty. You're the one who's guilty of this death because you did not, you neglected to take care of and protect people from an animal that you knew was a threat. And so God says, not only is the animal to be stoned, but so are you. But notice here that there is another way that this person could be punished. He could be punished by being stoned to death, which is the extreme, granted. But God says, you know what? If the family of the killed person is willing, you can pay money to ransom your life back. So instead of being stoned to death, you can say, here's however much money that will be required so that I get to live. Uh, and that typically was the way in which this would transpire. You know, even though this person didn't protect others around them, they realized you know, the ultimate guilty party is this ox, but you should have known because you've seen how dangerous it is to watch out, protect people from it. You didn't, so we are going to take whatever sum of money from you so that you can still live, but your consequence is you're going to have to redeem your life with this large sum of money. But the animal would be once again stoned, and no one would be benefiting from its life or meat. So the same principles were applied to death notice of a minor, whether it has gored a son or gored a daughter, according to this judgment, it shall be done to him. And this, you know, you just read this and maybe just move on. But it's interesting because in that culture, minors did not have the same rights as adults. They weren't seen as valuable. Uh, and we just see kind of how God continues to place everybody in the same value. Hey, I don't care if they're minors. I don't care if the culture sees minors as not as valuable as an adult. If he kills a minor, the same response, the same judgment, and the same payments will be due from him to buy back his life. It's not like, well, you know, I just killed a minor. I mean, surely I can get a half-price deal here. Well, maybe in the culture of the time, people might see it that way, but not in God's legal system where he says, no, every life is valuable. And also, if it were to kill a male or female servant... This person would be required to pay the master 30 pieces of silver, which was actually the cost of a slave at that time. So you had to pay for the uh, value of the slave. Now, what if someone is negligent? Okay, now something happens horrible because of their negligence. What's the punishment? Verses 33 and 34 tell us. If a man opens a pit or if a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey fall in it, the owner of the pit shall make it good. He shall give money to their owner, but the dead animal shall be his. If the man's ox hurts another's so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and divide the money from it, and the dead ox they shall also divide. Or if it was known that the oxen tend to thrust in times past and the owner had not kept it confined, 
He shall surely pay ox for ox, and the dead animal shall be his own. So here we see a new kind of law communicating. Well, what happens when someone is just negligent? Uh, and unfortunately, you know, that takes place. A lot of us are. So let's say you dig a hole. You know, you dig this pit. And it's a dangerous thing if you don't cover it. But you don't, you know, for whatever reason. Or you already have a pit. You open it up. You remove, you know, the thing that's protecting it. You know, maybe it's a pit for storing things or whatever. But you don't put the, the lid back on. And all of a sudden, a donkey comes walking by, falls in the pit, dies. An ox comes walking by, falls in the pit, and dies. Okay, well, well what is the punishment for the person who neglected to... Um, put the cover back on this pit and kept this, you know, as a, a dangerous thing for these animals. Okay, well, you're responsible. It's your pit. You're responsible for covering the pit. Uh, if you were negligent in covering it, then guess what? You're going to have to pay the owner of the animal what the animal's worth. Uh, you were guilty of being negligent, and now this animal uh, is going to um, have to be paid. But the, the one that died in your pit, if you want to try to dig him out, he's yours. Uh, but you have to pay the owner what that animal was worth because you're responsible for that. But what if your animal hurts another animal? We see what, a, a, what the consequence was if your animal hurt another person. But what if your animal hurts another animal? Uh, that happens as well. And God gives the legal judgment for that, verses 35 and 36. If one man's ox hurts another so that it dies... Then they shall sell the live ox and divide the money from it, and the dead ox they shall also divide. Or if it was known that the ox tended to thrust in times past, and its owner has not kept it confined, he shall surely pay ox for ox, and the dead animal shall be his own. So if your ox kills another ox, then you and the owner of the other ox, you're going to sell yours, the one that's still living, and you're going to divide the money of what you get for the living ox. And you're going to take the dead ox and the meat of the dead ox. And you're also going to divide that. Uh, and so since it was no one's fault, you know, you just have an accident where one ox is killing another ox. You're both going to come out at least somewhat okay. You both get half the money for the live ox. You both get half the meat of the dead ox. And hopefully, you know, everybody, you know, comes out doing fine. But that's when it's nobody's fault. You just got an ox. He's never shown any aggression towards other animals. All of a sudden, this is the first time. You know, he just kills this other ox, and you know, this is the result of that. But what happens, just like with the person, you own this ox, and it's aggressive. You've known it. It comes after other animals. It comes after other people. You know that you know this is the kind of ox that you have, and you haven't done what you should to protect other animals from this ox. And then the ox goes and kills another animal. Well, now it's a different situation. It's not some accident where now you get to split the money of your ox with the other guy and you get to split the meat of the dead ox. No, you don't get anything because you're the guilty party because you knew your ox had a problem. You didn't do anything to protect the other animal. And so now you've got to pay what the other animal's worth and you don't get to split any of that uh, because now it's no longer an accident. You are now completely negligent and have a more severe judgment because of it. So those are the laws that God gave to deal with violent behavior, whether it's a purposeful act, whether it's an accidental act, or committed by animals. And with each crime, we see that God gives us what he declares to be a just penalty, which we can be confident is just, because he's just and he's perfect. And so what he declares truly is that. 
You know, God knew how damaging violence would be on the nation of Israel. He knew how horrible it would be. And so he establishes these laws and this protection by giving consequences to these laws to try to help protect the nation of Israel from violent people, violent animals, violent actions. And his protection, notice, covers everyone, even slaves. Everyone in the culture is protected by God within his legal system, which I wish I could say for ours, but I can't. You know, the wealthy and the rich have a whole different legal system than the poor. Uh, You know, those who are like the slaves and those who have really little to no voice, guess what? They, They don't get the same kind of treatment in our legal system as others do. And so we don't have the equality in our system that God's system established so that everyone who suffered violent crimes would be situated in a position where they would be protected as much as possible and the judgment would be the same regardless of who was hurt. But you know what? When you look at all this, one of the things that it just kind of brings to me so much is how much God values human life. And also, as Christians, how much we should. You you look at this and you look at, you know, the punishment shows the value that God places. I mean, when God says, I'm going to remove someone's life, you, you realize, man, God's, that's a huge thing, and it's a huge thing for God. You know, I don't think he takes lightly the, you know, capital punishment, but he's saying, you know what, because you did this to another human made in my image, this is the consequence. And it just helps us see how much God values human life, and it just saddens me when you look at our culture today, how little human life is valued. You know, I mean, we can obviously start with babies in the womb, but, you know, there's just this mindset of, you know, human life has been more and more devalued. I think, you know, concepts like evolution has helped promote that because we're just a bunch of random accidents. So why should we have any real value? Uh, And this is why people need to recognize they're created in the image of God. They have great value. And to take the life of someone or to kidnap someone and abuse someone and sell them into slavery. You know, these are things that God sees as such a serious crime that their life should be taken from them. But as believers, I think that just hits us with, hey, how should I be treating people? If this is how God sees people and this is how important it is in his legal system, this is the consequences, then how as a believer should I be treating my fellow man, my fellow woman? Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, I think is a great encouragement for us. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, And evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. You When I look at God's legal system and I come to passages like this, I mean, this is where you kind of see them come hand in hand of, hey, if I'm a follower of Jesus and I see the value that God places on life, then I should let all bitterness, wrath, clamor, evil speaking be put away with me with all malice. That that action towards another human being created in the image of God is never going to be acceptable in the eyes of God. But I should be kind to them. I should be tenderhearted, forgiving, even as God in Christ forgave me. And I hope that, you know, as we look at this, and I know there are laws, and maybe it's just not as interesting as some of the other things, or maybe not as seem to be as applicable, but hopefully within all of it, we see the value that God places on you, on me, but on everyone. You know, not just people who have placed their trust in him, he places that same value on those that have rejected him. You know, he he loves all, he gave his life for all, he wants us to love even our enemies. 
And so that we would hopefully recognize, you know what, God values life so greatly, my actions, my words, my life should demonstrate that I also value people the way that God does. Uh, and imagine if just Christians did that. <laughs> I mean, imagine the difference, you know, in the church first and foremost, you know, I mean, we're, we're horrible uh, at treating people, you know, in a way that doesn't fit with definitely Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Uh, there's a lot of bitterness and wrath and anger and gossip and all sorts of things done in the church towards one and their lack of love. But imagine if we truly were kind and tenderhearted and forgiving the way that God called us to be and loving, you know, just how different the church would be, but how much of a bigger impact we would have on our culture. Because notice that Jesus says, you know, the world's going to know that you're my disciples, not by how well you evangelize, how well you teach God's word. He says, you're going to know you're my disciples by your love for one another. That we would demonstrate that first among each other, and then to those who are in this world, showing the value that God places on life by actually practicing it ourselves.